0: friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, reading this morning, verses 24 to 30. We're continuing our series in the Gospels where we're looking at the person and the work of Jesus. And in particular, for the month of December, we've been looking at the heart of Jesus. Meaning we're not just asking the question, who is Jesus, as important as that is, but we're asking the question, what is he like? What is Jesus like? Like if we want to find Jesus both believable and beautiful, uh, we need to know not just his identity, but his character. And so this week we're looking at the story of Jesus encountering a Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7 in a sermon entitled, Come and Fall at His Feet. And so now I invite you, if you are able to stand with me, standing is an act of worship. It shows our reverence for God's word, for this is not man's word, but God's word given to us. So hear it now, Mark 7, reading verses 24 to 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and would you pray with me once more? Father, we acknowledge that this is your word, and because it's your word, um, despite all of our powers of analysis and understanding uh, and syntax, uh, we actually need your Holy Spirit most. We need him to open the eyes of our hearts and open our ears and open our minds that we would receive uh, what it is you are saying, the truths you are speaking, the comfort you are giving, um, the ways in which you are lifting up our hearts and our eyes to behold your Son. He is our heart's desire, and we desire to see him more clearly. Help us through that. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story we read, uh, what is it primarily about? Um, And at first glance, it seems like this is a miracle. The story goes that a woman had a daughter who was possessed by a demon, and Jesus, seemingly without exerting himself in any kind of way, without breaking a sweat, he delivers her, doesn't he? And it's easy to read a story like this and be tempted to think the point of the story is to see a display of Jesus's power, a raw display of his authority over the demons. When you read the story, it becomes very clear. Jesus actually didn't need to do much to cast the demon out. He didn't need to see her. He didn't need to be within range. He didn't even need to touch her. He didn't need to... Splash some holy water on her, touch her with a cross. Jesus, in fact, doesn't even need to say, demon be gone. He simply wills it. He simply desires it and it happens. Remember in verse 29, he simply says, the demon has left your daughter. And the result is verse 30. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. You read a story like this and how are we supposed to respond? Well, one response is amazement. We marvel at the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. He's like nobody we've ever seen before. So it's pretty clear Jesus is not human. He's divine. And Mark wants us to know that. In fact, when he begins his gospel, uh, chapter one, verse one begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. He's telling you who Jesus is. He is the son of God. He's not a mere man. He's God come in the flesh. That's what we're remembering in this Christmas season. But like we said, it's not simply enough to ask the question, who is Jesus? But we're asking the question, what is he like? And this passage goes on to show us who Jesus is and what his heart is like. And when you read it, you don't just get a glimpse of the might of Jesus. You actually get insight into the mission of Jesus. You get insight into the heart of Jesus. What does he desire? Why has he come into the world? And ultimately what you're seeing in the story is Jesus shows up on the scene and he busts wide the gates to the kingdom of God so that all those who are willing to humble themselves and come and fall at his feet might be welcomed. Jesus has come in order that you and I, outsiders might be brought inside and we might be received into his family. Jesus has a heart and a desire to welcome the unclean and the unwanted, the unimportant, and the undeserving. Jesus, my friends, has come for people like you and me. Here's our gospel truth this morning, a one-sentence summary. Jesus welcomes all who humbly come and fall at his feet. Very simple truth. Jesus welcomes all who humbly come and just fall at his feet. So as we turn our attention to God's word, we begin in verse 24, where we read this. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now, be honest with me for a second. When you read the Bible, particularly the gospels, and you come across a place name, a city name, I mean, how many of you actually think about where that place is and its significance? Or you know, for all it matters it might as well be Lansdale. I mean, it doesn't really matter where the place is. And that's often the case because the place names are so unfamiliar to us. They're foreign, they're distant. Um, Most of them no longer exist. But you have to understand that although they mean nothing to us, when you were the original reader and you read it, it had an association. And so it's foreign to us, but it was familiar to them. And so, for example, if I'm telling you a story and I say, oh, somebody went to Lancaster or Lancaster, (laughs) you think of, the farmlands, you think of the Amish, you think of a place that's full of peace and quiet. But it's different if I say, oh, someone went to Wall Street and then you think of the city, you think of wealth, you think of, you know, loud and noisy. What would an ancient person have thought of when you said Tyre and Sidon, that Jesus entered the region of Tyre and Sidon? Well, a Jewish person would have thought, oh, this Gentile territory, that's an unclean place full of unclean people. In fact, if you were a faithful Jew and you knew the scriptures, you knew that Tyre and Sidon, historically in the Bible, they were two cities that represented idolatry and paganism, false worship. The Old Testament prophets, I mean, when these guys got going, they rained down judgment oracles on behalf of God. And chief among these cities are Tyre and Sidon. So Ezekiel 26, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, O Tyre. And I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. And what does it say about Sidon? Ezekiel 28, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgment in her and manifest my holiness in her. So historically, Tyre and Sidon, they represented cities that stood against God. They were God's enemies and thus enemies of God's people. So why did Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon? It couldn't have been accidental. It couldn't have been merely coincidental. It's not like Jesus got on board the Jerusalem regional rail, fell asleep, missed a couple of stops, and ended up in Tyre and Sidon and had no choice but to depart from there. No, no, no. Jesus ends up in this region because he's on a mission. He's on a mission to seek and to save the most unlikely people, the most undeserving people, the most unworthy people, people considered to be God's enemies. You see, Jesus enters the region because he's showing his mission is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Jesus came in order to make room in his kingdom, not just for religious insiders, but for religious outsiders. That's the kind of savior who's come into the world and all of this is summed up in his encounter with this woman. So let's talk about her. We read in verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And so the fact that she was a Gentile simply means that she was Greek speaking. The point is to highlight, she wasn't Jewish. She was Greek speaking. And then it says she was Syrophoenician by birth and Syrophoenician by birth means that her ethnicity was Phoenician and Phoenicia was under the administration of Syria. And so Syrophoenician. And Mark goes kind of out of his way to describe this woman in this way, instead of just saying there was a woman he met, but he identifies her in this way because he's kind of making a point. And he's showing the point in this way. He's saying the problem with this woman wasn't something that she did. It wasn't a mistake that she made. It wasn't the way she was dressed. The problem with this woman is who she is. Her very identity, her gender, her ethnicity. Those things disqualified her in the eyes of the Jewish world. And Mark wants us to feel that. You know, one commentator said that verse 26 is like, I love this phrase. He says, a crescendo of demerit, showing in increasing ways how little qualified she was to stand before Jesus. First, she is a woman. Strike one. She's a Greek-speaking Gentile. Strike two. And she was born on the wrong side of the tracks. Strike three. She is out. Disqualified. And there couldn't be a clearer portrait of someone that Jesus shouldn't have been interacting with. A Gentile woman born of Syri- born in Syro-Phoenicia. Remember how the Apostle Paul when he's talking about his religious pedigree, his spiritual resume and CVD, and remember what he calls himself, Philippians 3.5? He says about himself that, I am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Her great pride in his ethnicity, his pedigree, his lineage. Well, how would this woman's spiritual resume read? She can only say about herself that she was of the people of Phoenicia under the region of Syria, Gentile of Gentiles. Mark is painting a scene for us. Here stands the least qualified person. The least qualified person who could ever stand in the presence of Jesus. And yet she comes to him without any shame and without any hesitation. Now I want you to catch this. Remember earlier uh, in this story, it said that Jesus went there and he didn't want anybody to know. And so he went into a house so that no one would see him. It's kind of like in Mark 6 that we were looking at the past few weeks where Jesus wanted to go to a desolate place with his disciples. And what happened? The crowd saw him and the crowd bombarded him. They gave him no room for his own business, his own space. Well, same thing with this woman. Somehow she finds out that Jesus is in town. Somehow she finds out the exact house Jesus is in. And with boldness and audacity, she sort of interrupts his life. He wants to get away, but she shows up how dare she? Doesn't she know who she is? She's a woman. She's a Gentile. She's Syrophoenician by birth. And yet she barges and interrupts Jesus with boldness and audacity. Now let's stop here for a second and just consider some gospel implications. Here's what you need to be seeing so far. This woman can claim no credit in coming to Jesus. This woman can claim no kind of merit standing before Jesus. So how in the world does she feel like she can with boldness and audacity come and interrupt Jesus's alone time? Why is she allowed to stand before him? What more? How in the world does she get Jesus to minister to her? And the answer is this, because she comes to him with nothing but her need. All she comes to Jesus with is her need. Mark makes it clear the woman is disqualified in every way except for one. Her desperate need qualifies her. I think here the woman knows something of Jesus much better than any of us do. She knows that when you come to Jesus, you don't come boasting in what you can give him. That's not how you come to Jesus. The way you come to Jesus is you come begging him to give you something. That's what she does. Verse 26. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Friends, you got to know, how do you come to Jesus? He's not impressed when you come boasting the things you can offer him. But he desires those who come begging to receive. Your desperate need is all that you need to come to Jesus. And until you understand this truth, you will never really get the heart of Christ. You will never see and understand the heart of Christ. And if you never see the heart of Christ that says, come to me, and all you need is your need, then you will never come with the kind of humility required to bring yourself low before it. see, what's the first ingredient in the Christian? It's humility. I heard our pastor liken it to this one. He, he said, "The first ingredient you should find in the makeup of a Christian is humility." You know, in our day and age today, so many people are obsessed. We are obsessed with health, wellness. We want to know what goes in our food. And so when you find a box at the grocery store, it looks appealing, it looks delicious. Where do you look? What's the first thing you look at? Well, when you're a kid, you would look at the front cover. Is there a tiger on it? Is there a silly rabbit? You're looking at the front of the cover, but as an adult, you don't look at the front cover. What do you look at? You look at the side. You go at your nutrition labels. You look at the ingredients. Maybe you know this, but on that list of ingredients, you know, what's first? What's first is what's most present by weight. You know, the ingredient that's most present by weight in that snack, in that cereal, in that food. And I know a lot of you guys like to eat Spam. And I, I, you know, spam is not a food, like spam is not the ingredient. Spam has things in it. Some of you don't want to know, I'll tell you, I looked it up. The first ingredient of spam. And this is good news. The first ingredient in spam is pork, pork. I mean, the second ingredient is mechanically separated chicken. Uh, but, but you focus on the pork that, okay, it's mainly made of pork. Oh, I can eat this. The Christian, what is the first and main ingredient in the Christian? It should be humility. Humility should mark us because humility is how we come to know Jesus and humility is how we should come to Jesus. The opposite of humility is hubris. Hubris is coming to Jesus ready to boast because you have something to bring him. But humility is coming to Jesus ready to beg because you have nothing to bring him. This is how Jesus wants you to come to him humility, not proud and boasting, but humble and begging. And it's clear in this woman because when she comes to Jesus, what does she do? We read in verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and what does she do? She fell down at his feet. And the significance of falling at his feet can't be lost on us. The feet, of course, in Israel, where it was dusty and dirty People wore open-toed sandals. You wanted to stay away from feet, which is why it's a big deal that Jesus washes feet, why it's a big deal why the woman breaks the alabaster jar and washes the feet of Jesus with her hair. The fall at the feet of Jesus was a sign of incredible humility. It's recognizing, humility was recognizing what I am and what you are. And so I fall at the feet of Jesus because I recognize that. I recognize that I am nothing, but you are everything. I am weak, but you are strong. I'm unable, but you are able. I'm undeserving, but you're gracious. And when that reality strikes your heart, what you are, what you need and what Jesus is and what he has, you can't help but fall at his feet. It's recorded all throughout the gospel of Mark. Let me take you two chapters earlier in Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five tells us a great story about a man named Jairus. And here's what we read in Mark five twenty-two to 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus were told he is a well-respected man. He has a position in the synagogue, which means that he has social status and he has religious status. But the thing about Jairus is that he is in great and desperate need because his daughter is ill. She's near death. He can't do anything. He's not a physician. No physician can help. And so in his desperate need, he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. He humbles himself because he recognizes only Jesus can do something about this situation. So he falls at his feet. And how does the story end? We read in Mark 5, 41 and 42. Taking her by the hand, Jesus taking the little daughter by the hand. He said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. What's going on? Jairus comes to Jesus with great need. In humility, he falls down at his feet and Jesus responds by healing his daughter. Keep that in mind. If you have a Bible open, you'll also notice that in Mark 5, there's another story that interrupts this story. While Jesus is going to Jairus' daughter, another woman appears. And we read there in Mark 5, verses 24 and 25, and Jesus went with Jairus. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So while Jesus is following this religious leader, this woman appears. She's the complete opposite of Jairus. She is his antithesis. He's a man. She's a woman. He's named. She's unnamed. He has social standing in society. She is a poor outcast. He has his religious standing in the synagogue. She She is ritually and ceremonially unclean. These two people could not be different. And yet they share two things in common. One, they understand they have great need. And two, they come and fall at the feet of Jesus. See, the woman is so desperate. She's been bleeding for 12 years. No doctor can help her. So she says, I just need to go and touch Jesus. And she's making her way through the crowd. She touched them. Jesus, he's all knowing. He senses power, leave him. He stops the crowd. He says, who touched me? The disciple said, there's so many people. Everyone's touching you. And he said, no, 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 this is different. And listen to Mark 5, verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. Unlike Jairus in every way. But like Jairus in every way. In great need. Humbly coming and falling at the feet of Jesus. And do you know how Jesus responds? Because in Jairus' story, when someone fell at Jesus' feet, a daughter was healed. What happens in this one? Jesus says in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Here's what we have in Mark 5, two stories about two different people who understand their great need and humbly fall at the feet of Jesus. And Mark is showing us this. Jesus loves the humble faith of those who come to him and fall at his feet. Jesus won't turn away those who do. So then we get to Mark 7. Mark 7 is about a woman who understands her great need and in humility falls down at the feet of Jesus, it says in Verse 25. And how is she met? How does Jesus minister to her? He heals her daughter. Friends, this is the heart of Jesus. For all those who come to him, recognizing, admitting, confessing your great need, who humbly come and fall at his feet. He shows grace and compassion. Mm He answers and never turns away. He welcomes and he <coughs> receives. Let me ask you, what's keeping you from falling at the feet of Jesus? And do you sense your great need? I'm sure you do. I know you do. There's areas of desperation in your life, confusion, lostness, ways in which we realize that we're adequate, we're confronted with our own Weakness, are you falling at the feet of the one who promises to supply what you lack? Maybe I need to ask a different set of questions. When was the last time you fell at the feet of Jesus? I don't mean you came to Jesus and you, and you uh, made a proposition. Not the last time you came to Jesus and you talked to him and you tried to negotiate. Are Jesus here? Are my terms? When was the last time you came and you fell at the feet of Jesus and you begged him for the grace you need, the strength you need, the wisdom you need, the hope you need, the forgiveness you need, the guidance you need? When was the last time you were humble enough to cry out desperately to the one who promises to receive, to welcome, to answer you? See, friends, growing in Christ, growing in faith doesn't mean that you move beyond the need of falling at the feet of Jesus. Maturing in Christ means that you run to the feet of Jesus quicker. If I could put it another way, as you grow as a Christian, you'll find yourself lingering at Jesus' feet more and more, not less and less. Because when you're aware of how needy for God you really are, you will respond to his invitation to come and fall at his feet. Maybe some of you need to do exactly that today and come to the feet of Jesus. Some of you in this season of your life, in this season of sorrow or suffering or struggles, need to find yourself begging at the feet of Jesus. Now, in our story, before Jesus answers this woman, before he heals her daughter, there's actually an interesting conversation recorded for us. And without really understanding what Jesus says, seems to be a little heartless. It seems to be a little harsh. And we read it, so we'll read it again. Verse 27, she comes begging to heal her daughter. And this is what he says. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that seems like really offensive. It seems like really mean, but you have to understand, this is a parable Now it doesn't seem like a parable, but it's a parable because basically a parable is a short metaphorical narrative. It, a parable is a way that Jesus uses metaphors to teach a lesson. And in this parable, he's basically saying the children are the Jewish people, the, the old Testament people of God, the Israel. And he's saying God's salvation promise came first in the old Testament to the Jews. In fact, when Jesus came and he started his ministry, he didn't go to the Gentile territories. He started in his hometown. He started in Galilee. He started in the Jewish territories. And then the dogs are a reference to the Gentiles because dogs at the time weren't pampered like they are today. They weren't loved and cared for. You know, the other day I drove by a dog spa. I've never even been to a spa. And yet... In the Jewish time, in the time of the Bible, the dogs were unclean scavengers. Most of them weren't domesticated. They lived outdoors. And so Jesus likens this woman to a dog, calling her an unclean Gentile. And he's reminding her there's a priority in God's salvation promise. It first comes to the Jewish people. And so you are cutting the line. Don't you know that you're last? Now, it seems like Jesus might be rejecting her, demeaning her, offending her, but he's not because he's actually setting uh, the ball on the tee so that she can take a swing and hit a home run. He's setting her up to display great faith. And boy, does she hit a home run. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her, her response is "It's humble but it's bold and resilient. What do I mean by that? It's humble. She says, yes, Lord. She's saying, okay, fine. You're right. I'm a dog. I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. I'm undeserving. I'm not a part of Israel. I take it. There's no argument here. You're right. This is humility. She's saying, Jesus, what you're calling me? Okay, I accept that. But then she continues said, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And what she's saying here is, Okay, I know that I'm a dog, unworthy, undeserving, but I know in you there's great abundance. I know that you never show up to a party bringing just enough. I know there's always an abundance and a surplus at your table. I know you are good and generous and gracious. I know that you came first for the Jews, but I also know that you'll make room at the table for those who come humbly and in great need. You see, this woman, she latches on to who she knows Jesus to be and she doesn't let go. Yeah, she's a dog. She's a pit bull. You know about pit bulls? They're tenacious. They're determined. Once they take a bite, they do not let go. This woman latches on to the goodness and kindness of Christ and she refuses to let go. She argues with them. How out of your mind do you have to be to argue with Jesus? And yet she does. And you know what's more impressive? She wins. She prevails. Her answer impresses Jesus. And so we read in verse 29, Jesus says, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. He says, fine. What you've said the faith you've displayed, the humble faith, yet resilient and bold faith. I like that. Go, your daughter is well. Here's what you need to understand. Anytime Jesus battled the disciples, he argued, debated the uh, not the disciples, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers, they never went, once won against Jesus. It was a little embarrassing. I mean, they were like, oh, in a hundred. I mean, every time they went up against Jesus, they lost but the woman prevails. How in the world did that happen? Well, it's because of this. When the religious leaders argued with Jesus, they argued with Jesus always based upon themselves, based upon their obedience, based upon their merit, based upon their works, based upon their righteousness, based upon what they brought to the table. They always argued based upon something that they had. So their arguing was more like boasting. But when the woman argues with Jesus, she argues based upon his promises, his merit, his righteousness, his abundance, his kindness, his generosity, his grace. And so if Jesus is going to refute her, if Jesus is going to prove her wrong, he actually has to refute himself. He has to prove himself wrong and actually say, well, actually, I'm not that kind. I'm not that generous. I'm not that considerate. I'm not that compassionate. Jesus lets her prevail. Why? Because what she believes about him is absolutely right. She doesn't hold on to herself. She holds on tenaciously to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus welcomes all those who humbly come and fall at his feet. In the end, she's she's not saying, I deserve your attention. I deserve your pity. I deserve your ministry. You owe me. Look at what I've done. Look at the good things I've done. Look at how hard I've been trying. There's no ounce of me or myself or I in what she says. What she is saying is, I know I'm deserving. I know I've earned nothing. So don't give me anything because I deserve it. But give me something because you're good and kind and gracious. Answer me not because of my merit. Answer me because of your mercy. And I know your promises are sure. So isn't there room for me at your table? See, friends, there are two ways you can come to Jesus. Two ways. The first way says, I deserve what you offer because I'm good. This is religion. Maybe this is the way some of you have been relating to Jesus. And you come to him demanding, expecting. But the second way, the gospel way says, I don't deserve anything you offer. But would you give it to me because you're good? My claim is not on my goodness, it's on yours. And this is what Jesus desires to hear from us. This is what impresses him. Do you know why? Because when you're able to say something like this, you're recognizing two central things about yourself. The woman recognized it and you need to recognize it. First is this, something about your condition. Second, something about Christ's character. First, to confess something about yourself. Yeah, I'm a dog. I'm undeserving. I'm unclean. I'm unworthy. I'm unrighteous. I'm a sinner. But then to declare something about Jesus, but you're kind and generous and you welcome the dog at the table. You forgive the sins of the sinner. You wash the unclean. You love the unworthy. You die for the unrighteous. You see, when you understand yourself, when you understand your undeservedness, your unworthiness, your faith will be humble. But when you believe in Christ, your faith will be bold and resilient. With humility and boldness, you can come and fall at the feet of Jesus. You fall at the feet of the one who never turns you away. The one who has died to forgive your sins and welcomed you into his family. You also fall at the feet of the one who came to open wide the doors of the kingdom. To welcome the unwelcomed. To want the unwanted. To notice the unnoticed. And to love the unlovable. How did Jesus make room for you at his kingdom? while well, he who was worthy and deserving, righteous and clean, took the punishment that belonged to you, and he was treated as we should have been. And Jesus was treated as unworthy and undeserving and unrighteous and unclean, and in the end, he went to the cross where he was accursed and forsaken as an unclean dog in your place so that then you could be welcome to the table as God's child you see friends if you believe the gospel you no longer come to him with trepidation and trembling with hesitation fear and uncertainty you come before him humbly yet boldly sitting at his feet falling upon his feet because he always welcomes you i'll close with this uh this this memory I have, my parents, before they retired, uh, they owned a uh, seafood store in Baltimore City, in a Hollands Market. And because of the nature of the work, they were always the first in the market because they had to shovel out the ice from the ice maker, lay it out on the stalls, and then drag out all the fish uh, from the cooler, lay out all the fish, lay out all the shrimp, lay out the oysters, lay out the clams, if there was a bushel of crabs, set that up. They always had to get there super early and once I got my driver's license, you know, I had to sort of earn my keep in the, in the home. And so, you know, every couple of Saturdays, they would ask me to come out. And in the summers, they'd ask me to come out, especially if an employee was coming late or couldn't make it that day. They were very gracious. I could come a little bit later, um, but still before they opened. And so sometimes I would get to the store, and uh, I'd park, and I'd get to the door. And there are all these people because they're waiting. Right? They're waiting for the market to open. They want to get their shopping done before, uh, you know, they go on with their days. And I would go and they'd say, well, they're not open yet. The door's locked. And I'd say, thanks. And, you know, but I would, I would, I would knock. And, and sometimes, you know, it's like no one would respond. And it's like they told you. I'd call my phone. I'd call my dad. And, and you know, dad, I'm here. I, I, I've arrived. And then he would come and he would look in and he would see me. And then he'd open the door and he'd welcome me, only me. Why? Because I was his son. I was his child. He opened the door for me to come in. And that's a picture of the gospel. The gospel that says that Christ has come and he's opened the door. And for those who know him by faith, you can come in. You know, Jesus didn't just come to show off his might. Jesus didn't come to the world and do miracles simply because he wanted to impress you. Jesus came in the world to fulfill his mission to open the door so that people like you and me, the undeserving, the unworthy, the unlovable might be welcomed in and welcoming us and opening the door for us. He's given us a room at his table, not as dogs, but as children. And this is the access we enjoy. So what does it mean to fall at the feet of Jesus? What does it mean to daily come to him? Humbly and yet with boldness, to fall at the feet of the one who welcomes you.